In chapter 25, Jeremiah puts his message into historical context. From the 13th year of Josiah until now, a period of 23 years, he has persistently spoken to the people, and for all these years, they have turned a deaf ear. Jeremiah was not the only messenger that God sent. Apparently, as judgment neared and the leaders, both spiritual and political, hardened their hearts, the voices of truth became fewer and farther between, while the voices of deception and false assurance became more dominant. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss this word of judgment and the hope that is there for the Hebrew people. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Recently returned from Texas, visiting the grandkids. Y'all do okay over there? We did. We did. We, we came into a That was couple... kind of a combination <laughs> of Minnesota and Texas. They, they do have an accent. Yes, they uh, do. Several in Texas, yeah. Yeah. I, I lived in Houston, Texas for a while, and it's easy to adopt that. Yes, I was in Richardson, Texas for a few years, but I did not adopt that. But I did learn to say hey instead of hi or hello. Hey. 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 Well, hey, Bruce. Hey, Kirk. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Today we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 25. We have the text before us. Do you want to begin reading that? Sure. I'll read the first seven verses of Jeremiah 25, and Kirk, you'll read a little bit further in that. Mm Mm-hmm. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, For twenty-three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, king of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. And continuing on, verse 8, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, 
for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things that I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the works of their hands. So two great themes we find here in these opening verses of Jeremiah 25. One is the theme of faithfulness. Jeremiah had been faithful to his calling and charge of God to be God's prophet to the people. And he had done that uh, again and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that great Hebrew word, ashchem, or ashkem, excuse me, uh, which means again and again, or uh, getting up early, or you know, a word that emphasizes persistence. And Steve did emphasize that word in his sermon, too. Right, and you can see that in the um, companion text we're using with this, Eugene Peterson's book. Mm-hmm. Is it Running with the Horses? Is that the title of the book? I think that's right. I think it is. Okay, Running with the Horses. We'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> emphasize that same. I don't have it in front of me. Okay, well, the, that persistence of yes. Jeremiah yes. and how that's a admirable quality and and something that we should be encouraging one another, that Mm. persistence to get up and do the same thing, you know, get up every morning, make the decision. I'm going to um, be about what God thinks is important. That's Mm. what my life is going to be. I'll have a life of service, serving God, serving others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that will give my life depth and meaning. That's what I was made for. And we see that in Jeremiah is a great example of that. And the other theme, beginning at verse 8, we see that there's an end to judgment. Uh, Jeremiah is saying God will judge the people, and then the judgment lasts for a particular period of time. And after 70 years, something new will happen. Right, chapter um, 25, verse 12, but, you know, like Pee Wee Herman says, that's a very big but. That's right. Yes. That's right, Uh, and and that really changes everything. And so that brings up the concept of, God's judgment being a good thing mm-hmm. because it it doesn't last forever. There's an end to that when God um, takes us through periods that are tough, even through things maybe that we've caused ourselves. You know, it, it's tough enough when you face things that you're not the cause of. But mm-hmm. when things happen to you and and it's because you made bad choices, you know, it's like it's it's a different feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeremiah says, "Well, this happened because of bad choices you made." this coming exile of Babylon. Mm-hmm. But at one point it'll be over mm-hmm. and God will do something else with his people. And I wonder be... if those people listened to that because they didn't listen to his warnings. Do you think he, they listened to his hopeful message there at the end? Well, we have that sense that eventually cut on because Jeremiah's remembered. We have the book of Jeremiah mm-hmm. and his prophecies that happened because people finally caught around to the fact God actually was speaking through Jeremiah, mm-hmm. and what God said through Jeremiah did come true. Mm-hmm. And there's lessons to be gained from reading his prophecies uh, in our own time, which, of course, we're doing here in the 21st century. Well, we have other places where we learn about the faithfulness of God's people. Uh, you have this uh, text from Hebrews you wanted to read. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, that's the heroes of faith, uh, something that we go back to and has a summary of the Old Testament, but also lifting up different people in the Old Testament, different heroes and heroines of the Old Testament, heroes and heroines of faith. Mm -hmm. And you get through some of the heroes and heroines of faith from 
the book of Genesis and a little bit later, and then it begins talking about the uh, Old Testament worthies, as they're sometimes called, Mm -hmm. from the time of the Old Testament prophets. And that's where I'd like to pick up the reading. So this is uh, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, that's a reference to the prophet Daniel, Right. quenched the f- fury of the flames, and that's a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, mm-hmm. and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. These were, uh, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And this is a reference to the prophet Jeremiah. Most Sounds likely. very much like Jeremiah, right? They were put to death by stoning, and it goes on and on mm-hmm. uh, a little bit with that. And then in verse 39 says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, the promise of the Messiah, since God was planning something better for us so that only together with us would would they be made perfect. Continuing on in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So just as the Old Testament prophets and other Old Testament worthies suffered for their faithfulness to God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered. And yet he was raised from death, and he is our supreme example in faith. I guess we shouldn't think that we shouldn't suffer too. Yeah, and that's not something we like to think about, not something I like to think about, that no. uh, there, are, there will be more suffering in my life and yeah. more, more difficulties. Uh, but we don't face it alone. We face it with the understanding that the Holy Spirit lives inside us, that Jesus is our guide, our pioneer, perfecter, our Lord and Savior. And we have one another in the Christian community. We can encourage each other. Fortunately, it's usually the case that not all of us are going through the same hardships at the same times. Right. Unless we have like a natural disaster or war or something like that. Mm-hmm. But most often we are facing things kind of a couple at a time. And mm-hmm. so the rest of us who are having an easier go at the moment can help encourage one another and be there for one another. Sure. Well, I know that you've done quite a bit of study on this uh, 70 years. So the question before us, Bruce, is when did the 70 years begin and when did the 70 years end? So this is a very complicated question. So I'm going to give you a couple different ways of answering that. It's like, how long was the Babylonian captivity? 
uh, Jeremiah s- says here in Jeremiah chapter 25, that's going to be 70 years. Well, how, did, how did he get 70 years out of that? Right. So the first thing to notice is it's a really significant experience for the Jewish people. When you go to the first chapter of the New Testament, where the gospel writer Matthew is giving us the genealogy of Christ, right? he tries to summarize that in 14 uh, generations, or three sets of 14 different generations. It goes from Abraham to King David, King David to the Babylonian captivity, mm. and from the Babylonian captivity to Christ. Mm. So uh, we know Abraham's significant, King David is significant, Jesus is significant, mm-hmm. and the Babylonian captivity has raised up that level of significance. It's, mm. it's a big deal. Right. So when did it start? Well, when did people start being taken captive to Babylon? Well, there are a couple ways to answer that. You can say, well, at one point the Babylonian army came in. Before destroying the Jerusalem, they uh, besieged it, and then the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, gave in to them, uh, the Babylon army captured it from King Jehoiakim mm-hmm. at that point, and he was the son of King Jehoiakim, who's mentioned here in Jeremiah 25. And at that point, 10,000 people are deported to Babylon. Now, that's not the last deportation, and that's not the first deportation, but 10,000 people, that's, that's a pretty good number, and we see that number in 2 Kings chapter 24, Verse 14, so 10,000 people. So that happens in 597. I remember from our study of the story that uh, there were more than one deportation. You know, there was like more than one wave of people deported. Right. So let's say, let's, let's pick that number as the first number to begin with. So 597 BC. And then you think, well, when were they allowed to return? And that was the decree of Cyrus, who was a king of a new empire, the, uh, uh, one of the Persian emperors. And that's in 538 BC. So you subtract those two numbers and you come up with 48 years for the Babylonian captivity. But that's not 70, Bruce. That is not 70. And that's one reason why people don't like that number. Say, well, <laughs> well, maybe that's not what Jeremiah had in mind. Okay. So I say, well, when was another wave of uh, exile sent to Babylon? And that was when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego get taken. And that's uh, eight years difference. That mm-hmm. happens in 606 BC. And uh, so I say, well, let's take that year and let's take the uh, 538 uh, decree, the Edict of Cyrus. And then you come up with 68 years and you say, well, that's closer to 70. We're, we're getting the ballpark. Well, maybe it took a couple years to get the word out. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. Right. So, so that's the second option people look at. Well, that's, that's the Babylon captivity. And, you know, again, you go to different source uh, books for this, uh, different uh, histories of the world. I was going to say that, you know, I, I joked that maybe they took a while to get the word out. But, you know, there wasn't email. There wasn't newspapers. I mean, you know, it, it may have took a while to get the message. Hey, you guys can go back now. That's right. That's right. That seems pretty reasonable to me. Yeah. So that, that's another way of doing that. What I usually look to is, okay, let's think about the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, 586 uh, BC. Uh, that's when um, the last wave of exiles was taken to Babylon. And if you look the difference between the destruction of the first temple in 586, the destruction of Jerusalem 586, 
through the dedication of the second temple, which happens in 516 BC. It was delayed after the Edict of Cyrus because of interference by the Samaritans and others that were trying to badmouth the Jewish people and saying, well, they're trying to rebel against uh, the Persian king. Mm-hmm. It took a while to work all that out. Right, right. That's why the dedication of the temple doesn't happen to 516 BC. That's precisely 70 years. And that's what I usually think of in terms of the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies. It was exactly 70 years between the destruction of the first temple and the dedication of the second temple, which ends up being the temple that uh, keeps on being refurbished and, and added to even by Herod the Great, and that's the temple that Jesus saw. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there is a fourth way to get exactly 70 years. And we should caution everybody, major nerd alert. This, this is very squirrely. Okay. And it involves the year of Jubilee. Have you heard of the year of Jubilee? Oh, yes. Uh, every 50 years, there would be a great release of people that were in bondage, mm-hmm. and ancestral lands go back to the original tribes and right. all those things. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So if you look at not the prophet Jeremiah, but the book of the prophet Ezekiel, he seems to be very big on Jubilee years. In fact, the dates that you come across in Ezekiel, if you read the months that are associated with that, they have to be Jubilee years. Now, even to make that statement, you have to be pretty nerdy to have figured that out. Mm-hmm. But then people get even nerdier still, if you can believe that. I can't. Well, they do. They start to do the difference between a, a Jewish year, which is sometimes 12 months and sometimes 13 months, oh, yeah. and the Babylonian calendar, right. and then compare that with the Julian calendar, and then the Gregorian calendar. Right. And then you add up the years that um, people perhaps did not keep the year of Jubilee, and how that had to be made up for. And then the years they did not keep the, every seven years you have to let the land rest and rotate your crops. And if the Jewish people didn't do that, then you have to have um, years of recompense. And you add up all those. And so in the book of Ezekiel, you get into all that stuff. Mm. And there are ways in which to compare all that little minutia and come up with 70 years. I can read it and understand it, but I cannot explain it back. It is very, very complicated. Well, the bigger question is, can you do the math? Uh, with help, <laughs> yes, yes. I think my dad could probably do the math. He was a math teacher, but I, I need help. So anyway, um, I, I think uh, having said that those four different scenarios you run across and how you figure out the Babylonian captivity, the one that I always come back with, uh, my wife says I've said it so often to her that she just automatically thinks of that when she thinks of the 70 years mm. between the destruction of the first temple and the dedication of the second temple. Well, and I think it's important for our listeners maybe just to remember that that 70 years was a major milestone, a major event in the Hebrew people's history and in their lives. Exactly. Uh, it, it's like uh, when we have family stories about going through the Great Depression, for mm-hmm. instance. That was a significant thing. We have the end of the uh, captivity um, chronicleized for us in Chronicles, right? So you have some of those uh, references too, right? Well, I think it's interesting. When you look at the books of First and Second Chronicles, that's a retelling of the historical books of the Old Testament. It's kind of a second telling of that history. Mm-hmm. When you come to the end of that in Second Chronicles chapter 36, it twice mentions the fact that 
these things happen in accordance with what God had said through the prophet Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. If you look at Second Chronicles uh, chapter 36, verse 21, it says, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. There's that uh, concept of the land did not have the, the Sabbath rest the, and the Jubilee years for a number of time, and so they're finally getting their rest. Right, right. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in ful- fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And then the next verse, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of king of, uh, of Persia, Persia. King, king Cyrus, and so on. And what King Cyrus says, according to Second Chronicles 36, is this. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Mm. And similarly, when you get to the book of Ezra, chapter 1 has that um, same decree of Cyrus, but it's a longer version in the book of Ezra, and it reads this way. This is from Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, The people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So there's this emphasis uh, on the fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by Jeremiah. It's fulfilled at a particular time, at a particular place, 538 B.C., Hmm. uh, as the Babylonian Empire, who had conquered the Assyrian Empire, conquered themselves by the Persian Empire. And uh, uh, a new sheriff being in town, Cyrus, he says, people can finally go back Mm. and rebuild their homeland temples. It's amazing. Uh, A pagan king who now is speaking for the Lord, working for the Lord, supporting the building of the temple, getting his people to support it. Exactly. It's really remarkable. And we have archaeological evidence of this decree. Yeah, a very famous piece of archaeology, a find that was found in Persia, which is now in the British Museum in London. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it has uh, this decree from the Persian point of view. So let me read the translation of this. Uh, This was uh, first uncovered in uh, the late 1800s. Hmm. Gosh, that's... It's not that long ago. Yeah, not too long ago that it was discovered, though, right. of course, it dates from uh, the 6th century BC. I know, but yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. So it, it's in the shape of this uh, cylinder that is kind of uh, thicker in the center and uh, thinner at the edges. Um, I see the picture, but how, how big is it? Is it? You know, it, it it's... The size of our bread loaf, if, if okay. I remember, uh, you know, something like that. And say, what size bread loaf? Well, oh, it depends. So, but uh, you, you know, have seen it. Yes, I've seen it a couple times. Oh, neat! They're in London, and in a, if you go to London, in the British Museum, it's one of the things you'll want to say. Mm. So, let me read from the part of it that relates to 
those two quotations of from the Jewish point of view, what it says. So this is what what it says from the Persian point of view. From Shanana, I was sent back to their places, to the cities of Ashur and Susa, Akkad and the land of Ashurnana, the city of Zamban, the city of Maturna, Dur, as far as the border of the lands of Kutu, the sanctuaries across the river Tigris, whose shrines had earlier become dilapidated, the gods who lived therein, and made permanent sanctuaries for them. I collected together all of their peoples and returned them to their settlements. So from the Persian point of view, what Darius did was not just send the Jews back to their ancestral homelands. He let other people groups go back to their ancestral homelands, let other people groups rebuild their temples. Uh, So it is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and the Jews, of course, are recording that included us. And there may have been a second cylinder that specifically mentioned the Jews returned to their homeland. There may have been separate cylinders that uh, talked about different people groups. We don't have them. We have this general declaration. So they're yet to be found. They're yet to be found. But it's amazing that we have this confirmation of this something really happened. We we have uh, outside the Bible historical documents that uh, verify this. Bruce, our audience probably wants to know, have you ever learned to read cuneiform? I've not learned to read cuneiform. I have uh, studied with people that did take that. Instead of learning cuneiform, I uh, can't remember if they were studying Ugaritic or Akkadian, which are two different languages spoken mm. or written in cuneiform uh, alphabet. I studied Syriac instead, mm. which is uh, a form of Aramaic, mm. uh, which Jesus spoke, uh, but written with its own alphabet that my daughters, when they were young, swore it looked like spaghetti. <laughs> I'd pull out my Syriac Bible and they say, it looks just like spaghetti. Oh, really? And if you are traveling uh, on Cactus Road, if you go to the west of Scottsdale Road, you see the um, uh, Chaldean Catholic Church where they use Syriac as their liturgical language and they'll have the name of the church in Syriac there. So that's the what my daughter said was like spaghetti. Oh, I'll have to look at that. Is it is it on their sign? Does it, it, it is on their sign. So I'll see some spaghetti there? Exactly. I've exactly. been by that okay. church. But uh, the cuneiform alphabet is uh, Triangles, right? Triangles. It's done with a papyrus reed, which is triangular in shape, uh, which is elongated one end, so it looks like a, a, a long triangle, an isosceles triangle. And then you uh, use that, stock of plant and you do several impressions for each letter of the alphabet of whatever language it is in, uh, turning it upside down sideways or in a diagonal way, and you form different letters that way. Mm. So uh, really tough to uh, write by hand, but if you have a read, you can do it pretty quickly. Mm. Very good. Well, each week, Bruce, we've been looking at our eagle eco-confessional standards. We've also been looking at some of the documents that eco has provided. And uh, today your your quote comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. Right. Again, we said the two themes that we see in these early verses of Jeremiah 25 are the themes of faithfulness mm. and the themes of uh, God's judgment and God's judgment being good news. Mm. So for the quote from our confessional standards, I thought let's focus on God's judgment. Mm. What do we know about that? 
So this is from question 52 in the Heidelberg Catechism that says, What comfort does the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead give you? And the answer is, In all affliction and persecution, I may await with head held high the judge from heaven, who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me, and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but he shall take me, together with his elect, to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Yes, uh, very hopeful. Yeah, it, I don't it, think we think about that very often um, when we're thinking about judgment. Well, we've had so many movies from Hollywood about a dystopian future. Mm. And compare some of those movies, like uh, the Terminator series of movies, with the painting of The Last Judgment by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Christ has returned. It's about judgment. It's about terror, but it's also about glory mm. and beauty. It's a beautiful painting, mm. very powerful. But it's about the end of the world, of God uh, make, making a judgment on people, and about the promise of what comes after that. All right. Like Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 25, says there'll be 70 years, and then it will come to an end, and there'll be something after that. Mm. So I think there's hope in that. There's always hope in God's judgment. Right. Well, uh, that's great. And then um, we have, as a regular feature, a quote from C.S. Lewis, and this week you are quoting from The Last Battle. Yeah, from the Chronicles of Narnia, where we have imaginatively a view of the last judgment of another world. So this is how C.S. Lewis describes the last judgment coming to the land of Narnia. Hmm. The creatures came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter as they drew nearer and nearer. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or the other of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some look into the expression of their faces changed terribly, it was fear and hatred, except that on the face of the talking beast, the fear and hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You could see that they suddenly ceased to be talking beasts. They were just ordinary animals. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right and disappeared into his huge black shadow, which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But the other creatures looked into the face of Aslan and loved him. And though some of them were very frightened at the same time. And all these came in at the door, in on Aslan's right. There were some queer specimens among them. Eustace even recognized one of those very dwarves who had helped shoot the horses. But he had no time to wonder about that sort of thing. And anyway, it was no business of his. For a great joy put everything else out of his head. So judgment, uh, imaginatively, in, in a land of talking beasts and, and what happens there. But there's not everybody that wants to be embraced by the love of God here, portrayed as the love of Aslan. Mm. But there was great joy that put everything else out of his head. And I think there's something about that in the judgment. Uh, you think of the Psalms, uh, when the land restored uh, uh, the fortunes of God's people, we were like those who dreamed. Mm. Their laughter was turned to mourning, mm -hmm. and our sorrow to shouts of joy. 
Right. Uh, it's that sense of the people returning from Babylon, 70 years completed, and a new start for God's people. Mm. And so there'll be a new start for us, for you and me, Kirk. Right. Where all of the aches and pains, all the trials will be done, and we will be in a new place, in a new world God will bring about one day. Well, that's very comforting. You also had a quote that uh, you're bringing I, from our Reform heritage. Well, I went to the John Calvin Well, and he says, This passage deserves special attention, for we learn here that we ought to immediately return to God when he invites us, for faith is known by its promptitude. Is that a real word, promptitude? Promptitude. I actually looked it up, and uh, it means the quality of acting quickly and ah. without delay. Uh, we, we want to be people who are familiar with promptitude then. Yes, we do, because when God speaks, we don't want to delay. Oh, I'll get to that later. Right. No, I want to do it now. So Jeremiah is uh, teaching us a lesson in promptitude. Mm-hmm. Being well, we don't want to be like those that didn't listen. Right. Or ignored it or said um, or listened to those that were just telling them the wrong message. You know, they right. said they were prophets, but they were liars. God forbid that it takes the Lord 23 years to teach me anything. Right. And then he finishes by saying, as soon then as God speaks, it behooves us to be attentive so that we may immediately follow him. And I think that speaks to the faithfulness, um, you know, those people that are in that hall of faith that we looked at earlier, um, they generally um, heard the word. Uh, think about Abraham. Um, he got the word and left his people and went on to uh, a land he didn't know, right? I mean, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. Things that I recall about uh, heroes of faith that stick out of my mind is their humility. Yeah, it takes humility to be ready to hear God. And uh, hopefully we can encourage humility in one another and our other Christian friends so that we can be ready to hear and so that we can be faithful. What I like about the, the Hall of Faith is the, uh, that the people weren't, they weren't like squeaky clean. They no. weren't like super holy. You know, they were... They were human, and they had they had fallen and at times, and yet now they're here, immortalized in the Hall of Faith. So not very different than you and me or other yeah. people we know today. Yeah, it's yeah. comforting. Yeah. Well, Bruce, uh, would you pray for us today? Love to. Let's pray. Great and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for examples of faith that we've had in our lives, examples that we've read about in Scripture, and people we've known, people who've cared for us, people that we've been able to see have been faithful over the long haul. Lord, help us to be like those heroes and heroines of the faith. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be humble enough to hear your word, to respond quickly with promptitude. Lord, continue to lead us. We thank you for the hope that we have that your coming final judgment will bring us to that place of joy, that place to be with you in your presence forever. Lord Jesus, we lift this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk.